Welcome to Popkill. My name is Hilary. From U2 to Hosier, Sinead O'Connor to CMOT, Irish musicians have definitely made their mark on the world of popular music. But what makes this small island a pop music hotspot and what does being Irish have to do with it all? Each episode of Pop Girl dives into an iconic Irish pop song from a historical, musical and social perspective. This episode is about how a song can become a local anthem, creating a cultural identity that is larger than the song itself. For me, the Frank and Walters, after all, is the perfect soundtrack to Cork City. It feels like the song has been imprinted into the Cork landscape itself. Every time I see the keynote, I still think of the Frank and Walters t-shirt mural, and when I get on the 208 bus, I'm reminded of the iconic Billy Murphy performance in The Young Offenders. After All was released by Cork Band, the Frank and Walters, in January of 1993. The song was a huge success in the UK and Ireland, reaching number 11 in the UK charts and number 5 in the Irish charts, and gave the band their first appearance on the top of the pops. But what are the origins of the song and what makes the song the perfect Cork anthem? To answer these questions, I will be speaking to the Frank and Walter songwriter, vocalist and bassist Paul Linehan. And to get more of an insight into the Cork music scene, I will be speaking with UCC's Dr Eileen Hogan. I began by asking Paul how the band originally started. I was in school and there was two fellas in school who played guitar. They were called Paul Duggan and Colin Chambers. They were the kind of music people in school. And I didn't play any instruments. What happened was, I think it was around maybe 1985, they wanted to have a form of band. So what they were doing, you know, it's like cover versions. And they, they weren't writing any songs or anything like that. They asked me and I said, look, I... I'll play the drums in the band. And my other friend, his name is Leonard Kremen, he, he wanted to play the, the bass. I was fascinated by how the band practiced with DIY skiffle instruments in the early days. Colin Chambers' dad was in music, so he made a, a T-chess bass, which is a skiffle bass. You know, the old T-chess, T-chess were, it was a big box. And what you do is you get a broom handle, an empty one, obviously, and you stick the broom handle to the side of it, and then you put a string onto it. And then you just basically reward the room and, and then you just pull it tight to make the sound of a bass. So my friend, he was playing that and I made a drum at home and I was, I was just going to play the drums. And what happened then was that we did a couple of practices and he liked the sound of the drums and I liked the sound of the bass. Skiffle is a genre of music characterised by the use of homemade instruments like the washboard, jugs, comb and paper kazoos and the tea chest bass. The genre was first popularised in the 1920s and was influenced by American folk, blues and jazz music. In the mid-1950s, the genre had a revival in post-World War II Britain and it was popularised by artists such as Lonnie Donegan and the Vipers Skiffle Group. The Frank and Walters are in strong company with their Skiffle beginnings. Skiffle has been a stepping stone for many bands and musicians including John Lennon and Paul McCartney who started a Skiffle group, The Quarrymen, in 1956, featuring instruments like the washboard and the T-chess bass. He went to America, the, the, the drummer, and I went to London. And we bought almost the two, the two other musicians that we buy instruments, proper instruments, when we came back. I came back and I bought a bass guitar and he, he came back from America and he didn't want to splash out any money on drums. That was, that was the incarnation of the band. What actually happened then was they came down to my house and Ashley had bought a drum kit 
So he wanted he want to be the drummer because Leonard didn't buy one. So Ashley said he'd buy one. He'd be the drummer. That was the incarnation of the band. And then what happened was Leonard then decided to play guitar and he came in and we did a couple of practices with the other two lads. So there was, there was five of us there. And then basically that whole band kind of fell apart. We just, just stopped practicing the whole thing. And then about maybe about six months later or maybe a year later, my brother was learning how, how to play guitar. He said that he, that he wants to be in the band with me and, and Ashley. That was the kind of the start of the band, really. You know? So after a few false starts, this was the beginning of the original Frank and Walters lineup, with Paul Linehan as lead singer and bassist, his brother Niall Linehan on guitar and Ashley Keating on drums. I asked Paul, did they take any music lessons at the time and how they began writing music? Yeah, well, at the time, we were learning our instruments because we didn't know how to play at this time. There was no YouTube kind of tutorials, but we were just making noise, to be honest with you. Like we didn't even, our guitars weren't even in tune. We didn't even know that you, that your guitar could be in tune. That's how bad we were. So, <laughs> so eventually we found out that you could tune up the guitar. And the first, one of the first songs we ever learned to play was Transmission or Joy Division. Cause it was a very easy song to play. We were also fans of Echo and the Bunnymen. We learned a couple of Echo and the Bunnymen songs and the Cure. And then that was kind of like the start of. You don't hear instruments through those bands. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about your, your songwriting influences? Stephen Queen was the first album that I ever bought. And uh, I loved it and I was completely inspired by it. And I used to learn the bass from that as well. Then I think as, as time went on, we kind of were more influenced by the Kinks and the Beatles and like, the Stranglers. I also noticed that your songwriting is very kind of melody focused. Would Paul McCartney's songwriting style have been an influence on your work in that way? Yeah, I suppose I concentrated a lot on melody. When I was growing up, when pop music came about, when we started out, we were, there was just certain elements of punk and what we were doing. And it just wasn't melodic. I was just felt that it wasn't good enough. I would consider a bad melody where you actually just to stay on one note. So a lot of punk music was like, that was singing. It was just one or two notes hovering like that. And when I was writing songs at the start, and they were like that, I was always conscious of it. Like, just like I need to get this better, you know? And I'm so conscious of trying to make the songs as melodic as possible. So I just, even if I, if I naturally write a song, and there, I find that there's three, three or four notes, same. I'll just, I'll, I'll get on my guitar and figure out what the notes are. And then I just go, instead of going, da, 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 I go, da, 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 you know, and I just, I'll, I'll make up something that will, that will be more melodic. Soon after, the band recorded a demo tape at Caroline Studios in Blackpool with the help of a friend of the band, Colin O'Callaghan. This eventually led to the band being signed with Satanta Records. With the new label, the band decided to move to London. At the time, London was a major music industry hub with more opportunities to work with established labels and the music press and would have larger venues for the band. Around this time, the band also released their first EPs, Fashion Crisis Hits New York, Michael and Walter's Trip. 
As the band's popularity grew, they were eventually supported by bands like Suede, Radiohead, and even had Noel Gallagher as their roadie for a period of time when they were on tour. Because we were based over in England. We had done only a handful of gigs in Ireland before we moved to England. We weren't together very long. Did just a swim meet with probably about 10 gigs, I'd say, before we moved to London. And then it was like when we went to London, like we toured up and down the country. We were way more known off there at the time. As the band's lead songwriter, I asked Paul what his songwriting process would usually involve. Normally when, when I write songs, I kind of sit down with my guitar and I just strum it. And I get a chord, I get a chord progression. And then I just start to go into this kind of mantra-like state. And I just, it's kind of stream of consciousness comes out then and then I, I start to record. So sometimes it would be very rare that I'd write the lyrics first on their own. I would write it as it was happening. I would just strum, I would make a chord progression and and, that, and then I would just start, just close my eyes and off I go. Paul tells me about the origins of how he began writing after all. The way the song was written is that I wrote the verse of it in Bishopstown in my mother's front room. I was back in London at the time. We were back and forth. I wrote the verse there and I went back to London and about another month later I wrote the chorus. I like for a chorus and a verse have their own identity so that so that the sound is will be more dynamic and then I played the song to the lads and we kind of you know kind of jamming her out and it was it was starting to happen but I played it then for a fellow called Colin O'Callaghan and I I remember we were living in Warden at the time and he came down and I played him the song and I had no mid-late for it. So he said to me, he said two things. He said, Paul, you need a mid-late. I think your mid-late is, what, is what's needed. So I just started messing around with a couple of chords. And uh, I came up with the mid-late. There actually was up in the bedroom in the morning. He was there with me. And I, and I just, I went through and I said, is that all right? He said, Grant, that's good. So so that that's where the mid-late section was born. Colin O'Callaghan, the time that he came into the house in, in Morden, said to me as well, at the same time, he said, Paul, because what I had at the time was, for the chorus, I only had Balabas. He said, Paul, the Balabas are good, but you need to write lyrics there where the Balabas are. So what actually happened was, I wrote the lyrics, we decided then when we were, when we were recording the song, put the Balabas at the end, because there's a kind of a catchiness to them. Paul then told me a bit about the recording of the song. We recorded the song originally with Edwin Collins. He's in a band called Orange Juice. He's also the fellow who wrote the song, A Girl Like You. He produced the first version of After All. And Edwin was great. He really helped us with the song and helped us in the pre-production and, and just in the structure and everything. And then what happened was when the record company heard it, they thought 
it was good, but if it was going to be a single, they'd like us to get another producer to work on it. So then we, we brought the song to Ian Brody, It's in the Lightning Seats, Football's Coming Home, you know that song? So I think it's called, uh, yeah, Three Lines on the Shirt. Three Lines on the Shirt, that one. We worked with him, and the song was recorded, was re-recorded in, in Liverpool, in one of the studios, it was called Amazon Studios at the time. And Ian Brody suggested a few things that really, I think, I think he did a brilliant job on the song. And suggest that we start with the riff on its own at the start, you know, because we were starting with the, we were coming in with the drums all the way. So Ian said no. So it is a tambourine at the start, and then it builds into. And he also suggested it down, 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 down. So that kind of just helps to kind of build the anticipation at the very start, you know, and just the, the excitement, and then the thing kicks in, and you're off. He also suggested that we do the drop-down section where the guitar, just after the middle leg aid section, there's a drop-down section where the, it just goes to guitar, acoustic guitar and voice and then builds up again for home. That was Ian Brody's suggestion as well. So, so if, you, if you listen to the other version, it doesn't have that. So in a sense, we kind of had two producers working on it. Edwin helped us to bring it to one stage, and then uh, Ian Brody then brought it an, along another bit. I just think that the two of them had really, really helped us out. We think about producers, and a lot of people have said it, a lot of bands don't really realize how helpful producers are. Producers, I think, really add to music. In the same way, I suppose, like George Martin did a lot of really good stuff with the, with the Beatles, you know. By October of 1992, the band released their first album, Trains, Boats and Planes, on their new label, Go Discs. And the album's fourth single was After All, which was released in December of 1992, peaking at number 11 on the British singles chart. By January of 1993, the song was featured on the British music chart TV programme The Top of the Pops as the most watched music programme on British TV for smaller artists making it onto the show was often a huge career-changing event. I asked Paul about his experience on the show. It was brilliant. I, I, I suppose it was something that we play, we all wanted to, when we were growing up, it was like all about Top of the Pops and we, you know, it was like, it would have been our ambition to be on it, you know. And especially well, the night that we were there, the movie we missed Paul McCartney and Linda was just, their dressing room was literally across from ours. And like their door was open and ours was open. So we kind of got to know each other. You know, just we were, we were then and Linda tried to convince us to be vegetarians. And, and, <laughs> and Stella McCartney was there and, and there was another sister as well. I, I was a big Beatles fan, so I got a hug off the phone. I asked them, could I get involved? So I got a hug. So it was brilliant. I know, and he was so nice. Paul also told me a fascinating story about the person who inspired the lyrics of After All. She was English. Um, I had met her in England. I actually wrote colours about her as well. So it was like, just just before we broke up, I got two great songs from her. <laughs> I contacted her recently, maybe about three or four years ago, 
I was just wondering whatever happened to her because when, when the success of After All kind of re-emerged with the young offenders, I kind of was a, I kind of felt a bit of gratitude towards, you know, for her. I'm just inquisitive to know like how she was or if she's still alive, you know, or where she was. Just looked for her on Twitter and I, I saw something that might look like her on Twitter and I sent a message, but her account was closed. She opened the account about a year or two later and, and she kind of got back to me and then I kind of just contacted her and uh, we were just chatting. So I know she's, she lives in London now. She was a very nice person, you know, but it was, just didn't work out, you know, but obviously she inspired me to write two uh, and even more good songs. There's another song called Patways, which I wrote about her. She's about the breakup, actually. I was just so glad to, to, to get in contact with her again because I just, you know, I just wanted to make sure that she was still alive, you know, and happy. And so, you know, it was good. Aside from After All, there are so many amazing Frank and Walter songs. Personally, I love Colours and Tony Cochran. Where would you recommend a new listener to start with your back catalogue? I don't really like being defined by After All, yeah. Because, I think, as you say, we've got, we've got other songs, and I think we've got other songs that, in my opinion, are better. I know After All is, is, a, is a great pop song, you know, and it's a great sentiment. I think the songs are all, like all my children, but like that. You know, that one is getting all the attention. <laughs> I think even, even her last album is actually very good. I mean, like the, the, the Grand Parade is probably our best album. You know, the problem with music is that like it's ageist, you know, in the music business is ageist. And I think what happens is that people think that when you come to a certain age that, you know, you've got nothing to say, you know, but like I think our, our last album is as good as any of our albums. It's, I certainly think it's better than our first. My favourite album is either, probably be the Grand Parade, like, but my next one after that would be our most recent album. I mean, even our third album is better than our first, in my opinion. Like, that, that would be Beauty Becomes More Than Life. We had success with our first album because we were in the right place at the right time with the music and all. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a timing thing. Well, we've got seven albums, you know, and if a person was to start, Maybe the best stuff. There's a best stuff as well. That might be good stuff. Wipes or someone. The Frank and Walters have since released seven studio albums from 1992 to 2016, and they continue to play gigs with such a prolific output of work. I asked Paul what has continued to motivate his songwriting. When you're, when you're writing a song, you have to be honest, you know. And sometimes you might want to be, you might feel uncomfortable with being honest. I, I feel the need to be honest. <laughs> Do you know. What I mean? I feel that I, I just need to, I, you know, burning desire to express myself. You know, I mean, and I, all these years, I'm still, I still have that that desire to express myself. But what writing does for me is that I feel like that my life is in is in stages, and I think that you say over maybe two months or something like that, my life is changing. Because it's changing, I like to be able to kind of categorize that or kind of almost like frame it. And it's like, and when I frame it. I can just put it into, I can put it away then. And it's like, I, I've, I've figured out the stage I'm at. Downwriting helps me to just kind of put a formula on that stage in life that I'm at. Speaking to Paul, I was surprised to hear that much of the Frank and Walters career took place in London. 
It seems to me that the band has almost been claimed by Cork City and are often situated within the city's music scene. Cork City certainly has a lot of pride in its musical culture. To find out a bit more about Cork's relationship with music over the years, I got in touch with Dr Arlene Hogan, researcher and lecturer at University College Cork. Eileen Hogan is my name. I lecture in the School of Applied Social Studies in University College Cork. I have a degree in music from UCC and then um, in my final year of my studies I kind of got interested in community music and music therapy and I was always interested in popular music so then I ended up um, looking at social sciences and a degree in social science and then in my PhD work I brought together music and social sciences. Eileen's PhD research touched on a variety of topics, including the Cork music scene, local identity and emotional politics of place. I asked Eileen how the idea for her PhD originally came about. I'm originally from Limerick um, and I moved to Cork uh, to study music. And it doesn't take very long. (laughs) Upon arrival in Cork, it's probably, you know, the first taxi driver you meet that's from Cork will talk up the uniqueness of of Cork. You know, it's held as a very special place in Corkonian minds. So I suppose then being particularly interested in popular music and going to gigs, I kind of was looking at how that kind of attachment to place manifests music making in the city. Eileen explains how understanding Cork as a second city plays a big part in understanding the city's musical identity. There's a strong theme within the kind of music academic literature of, of second cities. You know, if you think about Liverpool, for example, as a second city, you know, the, the, the sense of second city identity is really important. And I suppose the point I made in the article around Corkonian exceptionalism was that the sense of exceptionalism was constructed with reference to Dublin as kind of the, it was perceived to be the industrial centre of music making, fairly or unfairly. <laughs> Ireland, but the way in which kind of Cork musicians bigged themselves up, I suppose, in a way, was in kind of denigrating the authenticity of the Dublin scene or kind of claiming that, you know, Dublin musicians are playing the same kind of stuff and it's very bland and they're all doing the same thing and sure they're only playing anyway so they can make money. And then by contrast, the Cork musicians or the Cork based musicians are able to say, you know, unlike us, you know, we're the authentic, true musicians. We understand the the art. <laughs> so the Cork mindset is sort of a rejection of the, the international fame and status that maybe Dublin artists might have easier access to. It's claimed anyway, because Cork musicians are saying they, they can't get that access. But in a way, maybe it's because it's denied to them. I asked Eileen if authenticity is an important part of the Cork music scene. So authenticity is one of those really big words in music contexts, like music scholars have been grappling with this idea of authenticity for a long time. But of course, then in turn, that's what makes it such a fascinating concept to play around with, with respect to music and music industry. And it's just why people are playing music and their kind of genuine commitment to art is always a question when music is so centred within kind of an industry. You know, my interpretation then of how Cork musicians or musicians based in Cork spoke about their music making was that 
the sense of authenticity they claimed came from their connection to the city and that sense that they're doing good for the city. So it's an authentic self in that sense, that it's not just a selfish kind of imperative to make music because they wanted to make loads of money. But the way they kind of narrativized their work was because they're also doing good for the city. One concept in Eileen's work that helped me to understand the culture of the Cork music scene is parochial capital. The term comes from Bordeaux's theory that capital can be any type of asset a person can have in society that gives them advantages, respect or influence. It could be the way that you dress, the people that you know, the events that you go to or even just the music that you listen to. All of these things can give you a form of social or cultural capital. Eileen proposes that in Cork, having an investment in your local community and local music making gives you a form of local capital. So I wanted to look at those ideas of social capital or kind of how people relate to each other and the kind of the status that people generate through their relationships and how they work together and how they play together. And to think about how that kind of capital is connected with how people live locally. There is an openness to embracing people, particularly if they demonstrate a sense of connection to the city and that they really invest in making music for the good of the city and for the good of the music making community and for the good of music itself. Moving back to the Frank and Walters, Eileen speaks about her work organising an exhibition on the Cork music venue Sir Henry's. That is remembered not only for its Frank and Walters performances, but musicians like Phil Linnet, The Pogues and Kurt Cobain. Sir Henry's was founded by Jerry Lucy in 1978 and was situated on South Main Street in Cork City. It was closed in 2003 and was demolished shortly after. Yeah, so when I started in UCC, it was in 1995. So I came to Sir Henry's at that period. I probably missed the glory days in terms of the rock indie kind of scene. That was the live music scene in kind of the late 1980s, early 1990s was more rock indie. And then the kind of the dance genre kind of took over. From the research we did from Sir Henry's, like the late 1980s were just foundational really with respect to the, the Cork music rock scene. So, I mean, the Frank and Walters were at the heart of all of that. It just seems to have been a really, really exciting period for making music. And a lot of the bands that were kind of coming through at that time were picking up in a kind of a post-punk legacy. So you kind of like the the likes of Five Go Down to the Sea. They're really fascinating. And then um, moving into kind of Belsonic Sound and Frank and Walters and people coming through. Like there was just really um, strong period. Yeah, there's just such a legacy then you know that um that kind of indie eclectic experimental vibe was really nurtured i think during that period by the likes of franklin walters and you'd so many like if you look back at the kind of the popular music histories of that period of so many court musicians that were over and back to london and it was just seems to have been such a vibrant period um, for Irish music making, not just for 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 Cork music making. Yeah, and the Frank and Walters were hugely important as part of that kind of movement. Can we call it a movement? I think we should call it a movement. <laughs> Since its initial release, After All has been voted the people of Cork's favourite song and re-entered the charts at number two on the iTunes download charts in 2018 after featuring in the hit TV series The Young Offenders. I asked Paul what it's like to see the show regain popularity in recent years following the release of the show. It's been brilliant. It brought the song to a whole new audience, especially younger people. I mean, 
ne- nearly every school in the country was actually learning the song. And they were sending us videos of their classroom playing it, you know. I was invited down to a few schools as well to witness them just playing the song, you know. It was great to be, you know, just to introduce the band to a, a younger audience. You know, when, when, when we play our concerts, like the younger people come along and, and they they go mad and for after all. So. In many ways, the song has become a kind of a Cork anthem. I asked Eileen why she thinks the song has resonated with the people of Cork so much. Maybe it's something about its its flexibility that it might not be about Cork, but it could be about anything. Do you know what I mean? It could be about Cork. It could be about Cork City FC. It could be sung about anything that people feel a great, deep love for. It ceases to become a song belonging to the Franklin Walters. Now it's a song that belongs to Cork City. You know, in the same way that the Sultan, Sultan Things FC, you know, where's me jumper is. That's the idea of kind of the local transcends to become the universal. And I think that's what that After All song does. I, mean, I suppose it does speak as well to that thing that's a theme in my research about the kind of the emotional community and the extent to which that community is in place. Like just people feeling that really strong sense of solidarity, you know, and community belonging. And, and that's why the song After All works so well. And that's why that scene works so well in The Young Offenders when they're all singing on the bus. Because it's that we're all in this together, even if it is a bus hijacking in progress. <laughs> you know, that um, we're all from the same community and we all know each other. And, you know, that we all, whatever about our kind of... Um, the occasional fractures and arguments. Ultimately, we all care about each other and about each other's well-being. So, you know, it brings forward that idea of individual and collective well-being again and the extent to which that's emplaced and, and why it comes so across so strongly in relation to Cork City. Paul actually expressed a similar feeling about the song's appeal. When I wrote the song, I didn't write it for Cork or anything. I mean, it, because I think the song it has a kind of a universal kind of message. Like the song is about appreciating when you have love in your life and you love someone and and almost celebrating that. That's for me. That's what the song is about. It's a song that a lot of people use as their wedding song as well. I mean, I've heard so many people only only this morning. I only heard someone someone they want to use it as their wedding song as well. It's just kind of celebrating and just not taking for granted what you have, you know, and kind of going, you know. You're the first one I love, and I know sometimes I get distracted by, by things in life, but at the end of the day, you're the first one I love, and, and I'm so grateful that you're, you're the one and that, you're, and that I have you. So I think that that's a kind of universal sentiment. Popkill is written and produced by me, Hilary Barry. Thank you again to my guests Paul Linehan and Dr Eileen Hogan. You can keep up with everything Frank and Walters related and watch out for their upcoming gigs on their Instagram page, at Frank and Walters. If you'd like to learn more about the band, I recommend Colm O'Callaghan's blog, The Blackpool Sentinel and Mark McAvoy's book, Cork Rock, from Rory Gallagher to The Sultans of Ping, both of which have been invaluable sources in creating this episode. You can find further information in the show's description. I have also included the titles of Dr. Eileen Hogan's journal articles in the description if you want to go and check them out. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love if you could tell your friends about the show or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
You can find all updates about the show on the show's Instagram page at Popkill Podcast. This episode has featured licensed music by Poddington Bear and After All by the Frank and Walters. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>